If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Why shouldn't you always trust the olive in your martini glass? Well, in today's podcast, Brian Hockman will explain all. He's the author of The Listeners, a new book on the history of wiretapping in the United States. And he spoke to Rhiannon Davis about the colourful history of electronic eavesdropping. So when you first started investigating the history of wiretapping, what did you expect to uncover? So I expected to uncover a secret story, uh, first and foremost. Perhaps naively, influenced as I am by the paranoid thrillers of 70s cinema and American culture more generally, I envision myself uh, filing Freedom of Information Act requests and mining redacted government documents and talking with kind of hard-boiled spies and spooks uh, from days of yore. Um, Given that I live in Washington, D.C., that seemed to be an easier story to uncover than if I were based elsewhere. I also believe that I was going to uncover a story about the government, uh, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA. Um, And again, living in Washington, D.C., as I do, seem to offer a number of tactical advantages in helping to uncover that story. What I found, the more research I did, the more reading I did, the more documents I digested, was a far more mundane story, a far more prosaic story that was actually right out in the open. Wiretapping and electronic eavesdropping have been perennial debate debates in American public life really since the 19th century, since the middle of the 19th century. And one of the great paradoxes that I've been wrestling with over the years, and I think the book tries to come to terms with, is how it is that we came to understand this actual public story, a story that everyone knows and talks about and fears, as something that's secret and behind closed doors. So I'd definitely like to talk about those perennial debates later in our conversation. But before we go any further, what exactly is wiretapping? So I think when we think about wiretapping, it's helpful to go back to the origins of the practice. Wiretapping dates back to the middle of the 19th century, to the invention of the telegraph, really. Um, And I use the term, historians use the term, and legal scholars use the term to describe any act of intercepting messages as they travel from a sender to a receiver. So in the 19th century, uh, in the age of the telegraph, that literally involves tapping into a wire, um, cutting into the circuitry of the telegraph system, and listening to Morse code as it clicks away. Obviously, techniques of wiretapping change as 
communications infrastructures and technologies change. So in the age of the telephone, uh, wiretapping works quite similarly up until really the birth of fiber optic communications and digital communications, where uh, tapping a wire is no longer technically possible. And in order to listen to conversations, in order to eavesdrop on calls or um, emails, say, you need a different set of technical tools. And also, it turns out, a different set of political tools as well, which is another story. And you mentioned the origins of wiretapping. This is something I was really keen to find out more about because it's used in the American Civil War, isn't it? Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about its use? Almost as soon as both the Union and the Confederate sides of the conflict here in the United States erected telegraph lines to facilitate communication, signal operators on both sides of the conflict began tapping those wires. Wiretapping in the Civil War is both about, it turns out, intercepting the enemy's messages, but also transmitting disinformation Um, Civil War operators had very handy devices that they carried with them called pocket sounders. These were mechanical contrivances that were no bigger than a cigar box. You could kind of hold them in the palm of your hand and use them to connect into the telegraph system. Um, And what was neat about these devices, in addition to how portable they were, was in addition to being able to Uh, listen to messages, so to speak, hear the enemy's telegrams as they were sent from one place to another, you could also send disinformation from them. You could also send messages. So you could pretend you were someone else and uh, try to throw the enemy off his track. Um, This was a very common procedure, a kind of new feature of warfare in the United States, and a feature of warfare that proliferates uh, in the 19th century. Um, Wiretapping becomes a sort of military art in the age of the Civil War, and uh, your listeners might be interested to know that uh, very quickly, um, British armed forces pick up on this technique and begin using wiretapping in colonial military campaigns. We have evidence as early as the 18th Uh, Late 1870s, early 1880s, British military forces are using wiretapping techniques and technologies in Egypt. Um, The British forces, it turns out, didn't call wiretapping wiretapping. They actually called it wire milking, and wiretappers in the British service were known as milkmen. That's so interesting. Where does that term come from, do you know? I have no earthly idea. (laughs) so interesting how those little quirks of language happen so going back to the civil war then how were these wiretappers seen by the press and the public so on both sides of the conflict military wiretappers signal operators were lionized for their courage for their technical ingenuity and their bravado one figure in particular who became a point of considerable fascination both in the South and the North and abroad um, was a Confederate signal operator named George Ellsworth. His nickname was Lightning because he was a so-called lightning stealer. He could intercept messages um, 
uh, which traveled as fast as lightning. Um, and Ellsworth was notorious for his uh, elaborate wiretapping schemes and was alleged to have been so capable, so uh, ingenious, um, that he could, instead of using a pocket sounder to uh, listen to messages, send disinformation, he could actually sever two sides of a telegraph line and uh, basically put them on uh, his tongue and uh, listen to the vibrations that way. This is just one of many stories, many uh, um, incredible stories that I've uncovered, but um, the fascination surrounding Ellsworth is emblematic of the fascination surrounding this new uh, form of warfare um, uh, waged on both sides of the conflict by sort of heroic technical ingenues um, who could uh, um, send and receive messages in the most dangerous of conditions. So you've mentioned fascination. Is that all there is? When do anxieties about wiretapping start to surface? So it's really after the war. Um, This is a period in which the telegraph system after the mid-1860s begins to reach a kind of saturation point in everyday life, particularly in commercial life in the United States. Um, It's in this period that crooked signal operators, sometimes actually alumni of the Confederacy, um, and crooks with a kind of technical know-how of the telegraph system, begin tapping lines for criminal purposes, um, either to uh, tap the lines of stock stock exchanges, uh, which were Uh, This was a a kind of common feature of the telegraph system in uh, the 19th century and also even tapping lines of uh, horse racing pool rooms to get ahead on um, racing results. Um, It's in this period that the wiretapper of old, the Civil War wiretapper, the heroic wiretapper, becomes a sort of criminal Um, becomes a figure who is regarded with considerable suspicion. What's interesting is that Americans in this period did not regard the criminal act of wiretapping as a threat to privacy, which is another story we could talk about. Um, It was seen in the period as an activity associated with the vice of gambling, the vice of speculation. Um, It's a kind of seedy underworld activity So you mentioned threat to privacy, and that's really where I wanted to go next with the conversation. When does that become a key part of the debate? The technology of the wiretap and the technique of wiretapping predates the origins of modern privacy uh, as a kind of legal term, a legal term of art and a cultural ideal uh, by several decades. And it's not really until the early 20th century that, at least in the American context, wiretapping become seen as a threat to privacy. And one way we can see that is by charting the evolution of wiretapping law in the United States. The earliest statute prohibiting wiretapping was written in the state of California in 1862. Um, And that law prohibited wiretapping, not on the grounds of the wiretap as a threat to communications privacy, but instead Um, on the grounds that wiretapping possibly 
interrupted the delivery of reliable telegraph services. And also a wiretapper himself uh, would be tampering with the proprietary equipment of telegraph companies. And that interest in protecting the sanctity and the security of communications infrastructures um, becomes the basis for a series of wiretapping laws that are passed on the state level over the decades. Um, the next law is in Connecticut in the 1880s. Uh, this is a law passed um, following a very uh, um, salacious affair in, involving uh, a, um, a sort of multi a family of multi-generational wealth in uh, the state uh, and a divorce case involving wiretapped messages. Um, this is a law that's passed um, in the 1880s. Uh, that, again, uh, was lobbied by uh, the telecommunications uh, companies uh, in the state of Connecticut. And it's about not protecting the privacy of its customers, but instead protecting the equipment uh, that the telegraph company, uh, telegraph companies rather, were, were furnishing to its customers. So um, this structure um, uh, was surprising to me. Again, we, we think about from our contemporary vantage point, we can we think of wiretapping as a threat to privacy. Um, really, in the 19th century and really until the 1920s, uh, generally speaking, give or take, it's seen as a threat to property and not to personal property, but corporate property, the proprietary equipment of telecommunications companies themselves. That's so interesting. And you mentioned that criminals use wiretapping, but then, of course, it becomes used by law enforcement. How does this transition happen? In the age of the telegraph, it was far more convenient for agents of the state simply to subpoena copies of telegraph messages, which every company held on file usually for six months or a year. It's a lot easier to like rifle through a filing cabinet than it is to, you know, sit outside, you know, listening uh, to messages. Um, still, that said, uh, when uh, uh, telephone networks begin um, kind of reaching a kind of saturation point in American cities, very quickly law enforcement entities uh, take an interest in the telephone system. Large criminal enterprises, uh, particularly organized criminal enterprises, use the telephone to facilitate their operations. So the easiest way to begin to chip away at, their mar at the margins is to listen to conversations. Um, as early as 1895, the NYPD is tapping New York telephone lines. And urban police forces in the United States followed suit thereafter. And how did people feel about the idea of wiretapping being a tool used by law enforcement? It was met um, with considerable outrage. Not necessarily because, again, wiretapping is seen as a threat to privacy, but instead the specter of the you know, law enforcement detective listening to private telephone lines um, this, to most Americans, called to mind the wiretappers of the 19th century, the sort of seedy conmen and criminals uh, who were, uh, you know, tapping the lines of, uh, you know, horse racing pool rooms or stock exchanges or bucket shops, as they were known, which are informal financial establishments. Um, 
So it seemed like, in short, the cops were doing the job of the criminals. Um, Wiretapping was corrupt. It was dishonest. It was associated with vice and criminality. Um, This wasn't something that sanctioned and upstanding enforcers of the law should be doing. And critiques of wiretapping that begin to emerge in the 1910s and the 1920s uh, are first lodged on those grounds. The, The question of privacy, again, comes a little later on. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He basically played back his testimony. And his claim was that he had recorded everything he had just said on a bug that was planted in the olive of the martini. And this sets off a firestorm. And when does wiretapping become a tool of the state? There are a couple different answers to that question. As I've just said, um, the origins of state wiretapping, law enforcement wiretapping in the United States are roughly coextensive, coterminous with the rise of telephone networks. So in that sense, wiretapping is very old. Government wiretapping is very old. But it takes a really, really long time, almost a half century in the United States for the government to establish wiretap authority. So between 1895, when the NYPD begins tapping lines, and 1968, when the uh, 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 Title III of the um, Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act is passed, this is the law in the United States that governs uh, wiretapping and and law enforcement wiretap authority um, at the federal level, Um, there's a lot of history. And one of the aspects of the book that I found most uh, kind of exciting um, when I was researching it, when I was writing it, was uncovering why it is that that lag happened. What is it that caused government wiretap authority to uh, um, delay as long as it did? Uh, the government's wiretap, the government's monopoly on wiretapping, excuse me, comes relatively late in the game, it turns out. And there's a really messy political story to uncover um, as to why that is the case. Can you quickly delve into that story for us? Well, it's not a quick answer uh, that I can offer. I think there are two main reasons why it takes so long for the law to catch up with the technology. The first reason, and this is a somewhat academic reason, uh, a little um, uh, in the weeds, but it has to do with a kind of conflict between federal law and state law in the United States. And in at the federal level in the United States, um, the law of wiretapping kind of remains unwritten um, from 1860, roughly, the origin point of wiretapping in the United States to 1968. But the states get in on the game relatively early, and at the state level, it's a real mess. There are some states where wiretapping is illegal for law enforcement, for private citizens, states like um, 
Nevada. Um, there are other states where wiretapping is basically permitted um, with certain guidelines. New York is the most famous. Most states in the United States actually had no wiretap laws altogether. Um, um, and that uh, really lasts until the 1960s. So that's one answer to the question it has to do with this kind of con conflicted, chaotic ground, a set of contradictions between the federal law and uh, the law of the states. The more interesting story for me is the centrality of kind of civil liberties style activism in the United States. Most Americans up until the late 1960s didn't like wiretapping and didn't want anyone, either um, private citizens or sanctioned agents of the state to have the ability to tap lines either for national security purposes or for the enforcement of criminal law. Um, and that, call it aversion to wiretap authority, drives much of the politics of wiretapping and electronic surveillance in the United States for the balance of the 20th century. So, Brian, what is the biggest scandal connected to wiretapping in American history? Boy, that's hard to choose. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> My mind goes to one scandal that I think listeners might not have heard about or known mm -hmm. about. Of course, Watergate comes to mind. Of course, the FBI's harassment and surveillance of Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind. But a far more representative, perhaps, scandal, at least in terms of the century of history um, from the origins of wiretapping in the 1860s to its legalization for law enforcement in 1968. A far more representative case is what's known as the Manhattan wiretap nest scandal of 1955. This is a really, really crazy story. In February of 1955, two detectives from the NYPD and two investigators from the New York Telephone Company, acting on an inside tip, went to the fourth floor of a building on East 55th Street, 355 East 55th Street, for those of you who are in Manhattan, perhaps, or um, uh, ever there. And, you know, you can just, you can Google the building if you want. Uh, on the fourth floor of the building, these investigators uncovered a listening post set up connected to more than 100,000 telephones in the city. A swath of exchanges that covers the most expensive real estate in midtown Manhattan. And all hell break, breaks loose as a result. Four men are eventually indicted for setting up and running this listening post. Eventually becomes known as the wiretap nest. Uh, and it had been up and running for upwards of 18 months. Um, 
And it turns out that in the um, series of reports and indictments that follow, um, that most of the work that this private wiretap entity was doing was on behalf of private individuals and corporate entities. So on the private individual side, um, high-profile New York kind of society folks were, uh, you know, using, employing this wiretap entity to spy on uh, their own telephone lines to monitor uh, their spouses, for instance. And this was actually very common in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, was hiring an electronic surveillance expert to tap your own telephone to see if your wife or your husband is carrying on with someone else. Um, it also turns out that the wiretap nest was involved in a series of um, high-profile corporate espionage cases ongoing in uh, the 1950s, early 1950s as well. Uh, it turns out that uh, Pfizer, the company Pfizer, the pharmaceutical uh, um, giant uh, that we all know and love today, um, had paid this entity $60,000 to tap the telephones of two rival pharmaceutical firms who were then litigating the rights to the antibiotic tetracycline. Um, so this is just to say that this was uh, um, an extraordinary affair that touched uh, so many different aspects of private and public life in New York City in the 1950s. So I think my favorite part of your book was an episode titled The Bug in the Olive in the Martini Glass. Can you tell us about this story? So this is one of the great myths of the story of wiretapping and electronic eavesdropping in the United States. In February of 1965, a notorious private investigator named Harold Lipset was called to the floor of Congress to testify about the rise of wiretapping and electronic eavesdropping equipment, uh, which was at that point uh, basically a kind of unregulated field in certain jurisdictions. And ever the showman, Lipset showed up with a martini glass. Um, and a tiny olive pierced with a toothpick. Um, and he goes up before the Senate Judiciary Committee and pretends throughout the proceedings to sip this dry martini. Can you imagine something like that today? Um, and at the end of his statement and the end of his questioning, he plays back his statement and his questioning and everything that precedes that moment in uh, the Senate hearing um, for rhetorical effect. He basically played back his testimony. And his claim was that he had recorded everything he had just said on a bug that was planted in the olive of the martini. And this sets off a firestorm. If the olive in your glass can record your conversation, where can you possibly find safety, privacy, sanctuary? Um, 
It turns out that the bug in the martini olive was a stunt. Lipstick had actually recorded his conversation from a bug planted in a flower pot in the room, not from the, uh, the martini glass. Um, and the martini uh, uh, olive bug itself would never have worked uh, um, if you had actually poured gin um, and made yourself an actual martini. It would have shorted out. Um, and even though it was a stunt, however, even though this episode kind of burned in the mind of so many Americans in the 1960s, it helped to drive a kind of pro-privacy faction in um, Washington and beyond. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I uncovered in my research is that when the FCC banned um, the private use of electronic surveillance equipment in 1966, the first item, the first gadget that it banned was the martini olive transmitter. Um, even though martini olive transmitters were themselves not on the open market and not even technologically feasible, per se, um, it just goes to show how much the myths of wiretapping and electronic eavesdropping help to drive real-world outcomes. And it's just an amazing story. And I'm very glad that you enjoyed it. And I'm very glad that The Bug and the Martini Olive is on the cover of the book. And something else that really struck me is how racism is connected to the history of wiretapping. Could you tell us a little bit about that? This is a really important aspect of the story that I've uncovered, and it functions in a different way than I expected. It turns out that the politics of race plays a critical role in the normalization of the government's wiretap authority in the 20th century. In order to understand this, we need to go back to the Wiretap Act of 1968. Um, which is the law that governs most wiretapping that goes on in the United States in the enforcement of criminal law. That law, the Wiretap Act of 1968, its official term, its official title, is Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. This is a law that for the historian of the United States, Bright red lights, flashing lights go off. This is a law that we now associate with the rise of the modern carceral state. And the question is, what is it that wiretapping, this specialized tool of surveillance, state-of-the-art technique for law enforcement, what does this have to do with the carceral state? And what does this have to do with the enforcement of street crime? And it turns out that for decades, a segment of politicians and law enforcement lobbyists had been trying to pass a law to enable state and federal law enforcement to tap telephones. They had been doing it really since the late 1930s. And it's only after the explosion of urban violence in the mid-1960s that 
their calls for wiretap authority get heard. In short, what I'm saying here, perhaps a little abstractly, is that wiretap authority in the United States is a direct result of the triumph of so-called law and order politics. And that is a racial politics. That's a politics that emerges out of kind of white fears of urban crime and urban violence in the 1960s. And the consensus among both liberals and conservatives alike in the United States at the end of 1967, following the uprisings in Detroit and Newark, is that law enforcement needs to be empowered in order to keep our streets safe. And wiretapping was one of many avenues that the mainstream of American political culture followed in order to make good on that promise. And we still live in the world that this kind of law and order contingent, um, which was motivated by um, uh, uh, racial animus. I think we shouldn't um, uh, um, sort of euphemize what they were doing. Um, The last thing I'll say about this is that the politician who carried Title III of the Safe Streets Act through Congress was a man named John McClellan. He was an Arkansas politician, uh, law and order through and through, um, also a staunch segregationist. And he stood on the floor of the Senate in 1968 um, uh, in order to, uh, to kind of support this bill. Um, and he wasn't saying that we needed to wiretap to, uh, you know, tap, tap telephones to fight organized crime or tap telephones to, um, you know, root out the scourge of gambling, uh, which was one uh, um, sort of avenue that law enforcement agencies had pursued um, uh, with tapping telephone lines in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he wanted to tap the telephones of black nationalist leaders. And he's quoted on the floor of the Senate saying, you know, we need wiretap authority to tap H. Rap Brown's telephones and Stokely Carmichael's telephones to avoid the long hot summer in 1968 and 1969, 1970 and beyond. So he was motivated explicitly by a racial politics. And that racial politics is written into the story of wiretapping in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even into today, given that wiretapping is the kind of favored tool of law enforcement in the war on drugs in the United States, which is a war that has been waged um, against black and brown communities. So would you say then that racial politics is, is the main reason wiretapping has been normalized? Are there other factors? I don't want to generalize here. But I think politically speaking, it is the case in the United States that certain kinds of surveillance raise the eyebrows of mainstream Americans, whereas other kinds of surveillance don't. The electronic surveillance that goes on in the name of the war on drugs today under the aegis of Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. This is a form of surveillance that most Americans don't really care about, don't really know about. And it 
at least in terms of numbers, it far exceeds the number of telephones that are tapped under the aegis of the Foreign Intelligence and Surveillance Act of 1978, which is the law that governs national security wiretapping in the United States. This is what the NSA does. This is what the CIA does. Why is it that Americans are upset about what goes on in terms of national security, whereas what goes on in terms of the enforcement of criminal law, particularly under the guise of the war on drugs, um, that is, I think, a really important question. And I think race helps us tell that story. Whose phones are being tapped here? Um, when it's the phones of black and brown Americans, Americans, uh, generally speaking, have turned a blind eye. That was Brian Hockman. His book, The Listeners, is published by Harvard University Press and is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.